You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different. I don't say that because the guy's a little bit different, although he is, uh, you know. <laughs> Usually when I do these podcasts, I've got a, a series of questions that I'm going to ask, and I've got kind of a well-thought-out process of what I want to do. I get a chance to meet interesting people all over the country. And sometimes I just put a note in my notebook saying, I want to call this person someday and just chat with them. So I've got some ideas on what I want to talk about, but mostly I just kind of chat with this guy today. I want you to meet Sam Western, Sam Western of Sheridan. He's a university lecturer, a poet, a U.S. regional correspondent for The Economist, my favorite magazine. He's the author of Pushed Off the Mountain, Sold Down the River, Wyoming's Search for Its Soul, and A Random Census of Souls. In addition to this, he's a guy that I met in the Mountain West who knows a lot about the Mountain West, describes it in a way that I find captivating, and is just a fun, interesting guy. And so we're going to spend some time here chatting with Sam Western. Sam, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, (laughs) I want to start with, because literally I have like five words written down that are just like basic things I want to make sure we talk about. I'd like to start out with just finding out where are you from and how did you wind up to be a guy living in in Sheridan who tries to make a living doing writing? Where was I born? Where was I from originally? Yeah, yeah. Where are you from? I grew up in Vermont in a, in a really rural area filled with dairy farms and pulp cutters. Eventually, I, I made my way out west and lived in Alaska for a while uh, in the Olympia, Washington area, ended up in Corvallis, actually then eventually landed in Wyoming in about uh, 1982. Let me ask you this. That story, it's funny because when you meet people from the Mountain West, that kind of story is, is not crazy, is it? I mean, you have people who wander around the world and end up where you're at. Is that a pretty fair statement? Yeah, it is. They tend to go uh, to areas like Sheridan that have a high scenic amenity value. There's not many people in Wyoming that are that were born here, natives. It's a pretty low percentage. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? I mean, do the, do the natives tend to leave or <laughs> is it just because the population inflow has been so great over the last three decades? Or it, It's the population inflow that Wyoming is an energy state uh, and a lot of people have come for the jobs. I think you could probably look at, at, at Montana or certainly Nevada, which are states that I'm looking at. You know, I, I don't know what the pop percentage of native-born folks in Nevada is, but it's pretty low compared to what it was, say, 70 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Now, when we're talking about the Mountain West, I've seen descriptions of the Mountain West that run all along the Rockies. What do you think when you think of the, the West in this country? Like what states, what regions, what are you talking about? Uh, that's a great question because that definitely deserves definition. When I say the Mountain West, I mean Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, which make up 281 counties that I'm, I've been looking at. 
it's fascinating to me if, if I had to describe this area with just a limited amount of words. The first one that comes to my mind, I think people might think this is a negative, but I think desolate. And I don't mean that in a despair kind of way, but I do think, you know, I did a curbside chat tour of Idaho and uh, I kind of looked on the map and thought, well, these places will be two hours apart and seven hours later, we're not there yet. (laughs) You know, (laughs) these are places where the idea of density is, you know, for someone from Vermont, for example, we're talking about two different worlds, right? We are absolutely speaking about two different worlds or any New England state, except for Maine. But Wyoming has uh, 5.4 people per square mile. I don't know. I was wondering what that 0.4 looks like. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we have the lowest population density in the other states in Alaska. That lends itself to all sorts of issues when it comes to thinking about communities and residential development. Absolutely. I don't know if we should get into this right away, but I want to talk a little bit about the two books that you wrote. Maybe there's other things about the West and about Wyoming, Montana, the whole the whole experience that we need to delve into a little bit more. Maybe the book is a good way to do it. Can you just talk about the first one, The Pushed Off the Mountain, Sold Down the River? It's a fascinating book and concept. And I maybe just give you a chance to kind of describe what you were doing with that book. That book had sort of interesting origins. For a long time, Chuck, one of the ways I made a living was I was a big game hunting guy. I would work for two or three weeks every fall and guide. But it was also a time for me to get out. I would scout, and I had a backpack. And uh, one day I was scouting. I've been thinking about the struggles of the state of Wyoming, how it was a bull and bust state and so commodity-driven, especially oil and gas. I had this, this little voice in the back of my head said, right, now. So I had a little journal I with me. So I just got the journal out, and I, I wrote, pushed off the mountain, sold down the river at the top of the page. And in 10 minutes, I wrote the outline for the book. Yeah. It just it just came. Yeah. And then I looked at it and said, well, that's uh, that's interesting. Closed the book, put it back in my pack. Didn't really think about it for about six months, but it was in the back of my mind. And then I happened to be in London, and I went and saw my editor at The Economist. And she took me out, and over a, over a plate of mediocre linguine, she said, what have you been thinking about lately? I said, I've got this idea about Wyoming, how it's, it's such a paradoxical place, which is it's supposed to be independent, and yet it's totally interdependent, and it's utterly dependent on commodities. And there's sort of this, there's this mythology going out of independence when, in fact, we are, we're very dependent, we're codependent, if you want to employ that term, on other entities. And so that's what this book was about, is exploring how Wyoming turned out to be the way it is, and I will say parenthetically that there were a couple numbers that just, when I heard them, I said, no, that can't be right. And one of them was, Chuck, is that I heard sometime a party or something, this was years ago, that one day in 1969, Stan Hathaway, the former governor of Wyoming, uh, got a visit from the treasurer and he said, Governor, we have $80 in a general fund. <laughs> yeah. The governor said, that can't be right. He said, well, yes, sir, it is. I, well, actually, I heard the story that it was $100. Okay. So when I interviewed Governor Hathaway for this book, I said, did you really have $100 in the general fund? He banged his fist on the table and said, no, damn it, it was $80. <laughs> uh, so that's how Wyoming said, we've got to tax minerals. We have to put a severance tax, a percentage 
on the volume produced from each oil, gas, well, and from a coal mine. And we will put a percentage of that into a permanent mineral fund. But Wyoming, before that time, now Wyoming is a wealthy state. Right, right. But before then, we weren't Appalachian poor. But boy, we didn't have much money to put in the coffee can. Right. Wyoming is sort of unique in that way, but there are other states that are, like Idaho is not a state that enjoys much wealth, except in pocket. New Mexico, the same way. Big, big differential. I mean, Santa Fe is one of the wealthiest places in the universe. Right. And yet, there's a lot of subsistence living in New Mexico. Let's talk about that dichotomy. I mean, one of the fascinating conversations that we have had is that rugged, independent spirit, which, quite frankly, you have to have to live in these places, right? You do. Yeah. One day it's going to snow two feet, and the next day it's going to blow 40 miles an hour. And, you know, you, you've got to be a, a rugged person with an individual sense of, of spirit to live in a place like this. Yet the economy of these places is utterly dependent on kind of a new form of mercantilism. Basically, we're going to spend a lot of federal and state money making it so that we can extract whatever, if it's uh, minerals, if it's oil, uh, gas, whatever it is. And out of essentially that flow in, we're going to be able to survive here. It's a very, as you described it, codependent. It's a very kind of fragile, fragile existence. How is that reconciled in the minds of people who live in this part of the world? I got to be careful not to paint with too broad a brush because the economy of Arizona is very different than the economy of Montana and Idaho. Right. Arizona has two major cities, and you know, and cities are the drivers. But it's also reconciled in places like Idaho and, and Montana and parts of Wyoming. Though, say Wyoming is actually quite a wealthy state. Because one, people are pretty rugged here. Secondly, being rich here is not something that people aspire to. I mean, nobody wants to live in poverty, but I've seen many people, met them, who were multi, multi, and were dressed kind of like, you know, they kind of, they were like Warren Buffett, except in blue jeans and a flannel shirt. Right. Ostentation is not cool here, which is wonderful. Yeah. Also, people, they don't need much. What they want is that they want sort of a decent job. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm overgeneralizing, and that's not fair. And they want open space. That's a big open space that comes in many forms, whether it's a high prairie or whether it's a national forest. That's pretty important to values of the Mountain West, most of the Mountain West anyway. Yeah. I had this experience a number of times, and I want you to react to it, because I think you've seen it, too. You, you've been half a dozen times when I've given talks out there. But one time in particular I had where I, I spoke in front of this group and there's about 30 people and got to the end and I, I knew what the kind of most important issues in the community were. And I was ready for their questions. And when I got to the end, I said, does anybody here have a question? Nobody said anything. So I said, you sure? Nobody has a question, anything you want to talk about? Silence. So I asked myself the first question that I knew was on people's mind, and it was about the oil industry, and I tried to answer it. And then I thought, you know, maybe that will warm people up. Does anybody have a question? Nobody. I went through three different iterations of this, and nobody asked a single question. Finally, I said, well, okay, if nobody has got any questions, thanks for being here, and I appreciate your time, and good luck to everybody. Bam, 
all of a sudden there was a line in front of me, single file line in front of me. Everybody wanted to ask a question. They just wanted to ask it (laughs) one-on-one, not in front of everybody else. (laughs) This isn't something that happens when I'm in Vermont or California or Florida or Texas. What is it about that? I want to say it's part pragmatic, part like reserved and conservative, but I also find it to be quite charming and you can generalize as much as you want about people who live in your part of the world. That's a very astute comment, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that there are no secrets in small communities. Right. If you want to do something different, then you know, do your homework first, then talk about it in a public meeting. Don't ask incendiary questions that you want to explore first in private in a public setting unless you have to. It's a combination of charm and politics that people want to talk to you one-on-one. Also, I I just think in a lot of these communities, people, they want change, but they don't know how to go about it. Right. They're stuck. They recognize that something has to happen, but man, they don't even know where to start. And I think you're familiar with that, Diane. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's probably one of the reasons, and I think it's true, that is singular to rural areas. Yeah. Where everybody is dependent on each other. What does the boom and bust mentality do to people over time? And I especially saw this in Idaho, where for most part, I was in places that were either long removed from a boom or just coming off of a boom. These places were, I want to say like, not depressed, but, but they were places where they were skeptical, like leery of the boom, right? Right. But I've been to other places where they were in the upswing of the boom, and they feel overwhelmed, maybe a little bit scared almost. How does the repeated boom and bust cycle that comes with these commodity-driven places, how does that impact someone's mentality over time, do you think? I think there are very few positives to it. Yeah. It wears people out. And you know, it, it creates this this feeling, right? there's euphoria, and then when there's euphoria, people risk. They'll go out and they'll put a big subdivision outside of town. And the county commissioners and the city will sign off, will supply the infrastructure. And when you're at war and property taxes are up, like sales taxes are up, boy, it's great. But then when that all falls apart, and then you have this entity sitting outside of town that can't pay for itself, it really discourages people. And the other thing it does, Chuck, is that it's hell on demographics. People just don't want to raise their kids in a community that's boom and bust. It's very difficult. Right. There's never enough money around. There's not much opportunity for your kids. Uh, this is especially true of Gen Xers and the millennials. They have greater expectations about what a community is going to do for, rightly right. or wrongly. Right. The core, to me... The money is secondary. What's primary is how it affects people and people at the heart of our community. It's really tough on families. When you look at that situation, families, especially when you're looking at the boom bust over multiple generations, it seems to me to be a recurring theme. Looking at this as an outsider who's visited a number of times and gotten intimate with a few places, that there's a longing of many younger people to want to find a niche there and find a place to stay in a bizarre way. They're kind of priced out in many ways. In some ways they are not able to live the lifestyle that their parents lived or that they think would be good for them or for their families. 
the economy there has changed a lot in the last 30 years. How do you think this is going to change the future of the Mountain West? There are different types of boom and busts. For example, Chuck, you are familiar with Teton County, Idaho. Right, right. You know, and that they had a boom in housing, and they just overbuilt their poster child. And so now Teton County is left with the aftermath. They have hundreds of years of supply of developed yes. lots. <laughs> yes, they do. Right. Yeah, they have. Then there's a boom and bust that's a commodity-driven boom and bust, like oil and gas. And they tend to have different ramifications, bigger statewide ramifications. Okay. And I think those are more severe. Chuck, it's, it's those communities that have a multi-age, economically diverse tax base. It's not just jobs. Jobs are great. We've got to have them. But a tax base that allows them to be resilient. Because no matter where you live, never when, I mean, you can say, well, gosh, Silicon Valley doesn't bust. Well, actually, in 2008, or when the dot-com boom went, it was ugly. Right, right. So we do go through these boom and busts, and they vary from community to community. But again, what I'd like to see in Mountain West communities is multi-age, which is to say we have we have the grandparents or the grandkids who are able to stay there, make a good living, and uh, that they are able to be resilient enough to withstand economic downturns, which will come, to keep the community together. Because I think that's that's the ultimate harm for busts is that it just again it, it keeps that multi-generational bridge if you will that core yeah. from sticking around let, let me throw out something to you and have you react to this because i i mean i grew up on a farm my parents went back to school later and became teachers so i, I don't want people to think i was a farmer in the sense that people in the mountain west are farmers i mean we had 80 acres and a few cattle and some chickens and you know right. it, it was right. not a farming operation the way you guys would think right. of it but I, I did get to know a, a lot of people who that was their existence was farming. And one of the interesting things that embeds in that mentality is that there's a certain base. You learn to live essentially within your means during the meager times, right? Yes. And then when you have times of plenty, that's when you do things that are pragmatic, right? Like you fix the roof on the house. And, right. you know, you maybe do an addition because the family's grown and you, you but you're not going to say, go take on a, a huge mortgage or a, a big payment because you don't know if five years from now you'll be back to the meager times. So you always kind of keep it so you can go back to, to meager times. Right. It seems to me, though, that our economic system from a national standpoint and reflected now in some of the state policies as well is more along the lines of we're not going to have meager as a baseline. We're going to have continuous growth as a baseline. To me, that, in a sense, undermines the fabric. We can talk about the social fabric, the cultural fabric, but certainly the economic fabric of a lot of these communities that now your time has come and go take on that big debt. Go take on that big obligation. How much is the actual... American dream as personified by kind of the rest of the country, not applicable to the mountain West or, or when it is being applied it is actually undermining what is strong and great about the mountain West. Wow. There's a lot there. Yeah, there uh, is. And go ahead and take it wherever you want. First of all, you, you've got to deal with size. 
Well, let's take it back. If you have a single driver economy, Chuck, like energy, right? When you contract, it's really ugly. Sure. You know, and just think of like the steel industry on Pittsburgh, which is sort of a, an analog. But there are a lot of factors in that. But if you have a single driver economy, those communities just they just wither. Uh, you know, when you were talking about about how ranch families or farm families, how they manage to to do okay, you know, they, they buy used cars and you know whatever, but they, but but they're not they're not poor, you know, they're not right. Uh, they're not suffering. And I remember one time interviewing a, a rancher in Nebraska, and I said, well, "What do you do when you have a really good cattle year?" He said, "I go to the bank and pay off every debt I have." Right. Right. Yeah. So that means that when when you hard times come back, you don't have to service the debt. Right. And that is the analog for communities. They expand, they boom, they do not do things incrementally. They borrow like hell, then there's a contraction. And they're left with all this debt, they're left with this infrastructure that they're more or less obligated to service. Right. And so that is going to pull that money, which could be used for, you fill in the blank, hospitals. I mean, things that are pretty central to any community. Right. Parks, uh, even daycare. That, that gets shunted. It gets pulled into servicing debt or or doing things that just any person with any accounting would look at and say, oh, oh, really, this this is not my idea of prosperity. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what we're talking about is I, I think that the American dream, the sort of mythological prosperity, uh, which I, I, I have a different definition than most, I would suspect. What's your definition? I want to react to it. Go ahead. You know, I, I read a book a couple of years ago that just totally blew my mind, and it was called The Timeless Way of building by Christopher Alexander. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. And his core thesis is you can do all sorts of things with a, with a building, with a park, with a community. But the most important thing is what are you going to do there? What's, what's your purpose for being there? Yeah. So my idea of a community is you start with that first. How do we support a multi-generational community? And then we sort of build out from that. And how do, how do we make sure that that sense of prosperity can go from generation to generation, and there's going to be tough times. So how do we espouse an idea that says, all right, there'll be tough times ahead. How do we have to plan our building, uh, our town, our community, so we can continue not to grow, per se, like a chamber of commerce growth, but we can prosper, that we can be healthy, physically healthy, and that we have enough money that we can pay our debts, and that we can take care of our the services uh, like schools, et cetera, without having to go to the state capitol with begging cup in hand or send our representatives to Washington and say, oh, for God's sakes, come help us because we're really in trouble. No municipality wants to do that. So my sort of definition of prosperity has to do with recognizing what you can and can't control uh, in a community and focusing on what you can control. But don't don't be afraid of risk in some other ways, in creative ways, but it's focused on what you can control and how do you assure multi-generational prosperity, lowercase p, I would say. Yeah. It seems to me like the tragic thing about Montana and Wyoming in particular to me is that the wealth that is now flowing through those states and flowed through in the housing boom too. And we should talk specifically about housing in a minute here, but you know, the wealth that flowed through those states basically made people forget a lot of those hard lessons. I had a wildlife management class once where we talked about hibernation. 
it was fascinating to me because you know growing up i thought hibernation is you know certain animals just go to sleep in the winter cuz there's no food or what have you but hibernation from a physiological standpoint is basically like dying slowly and yes. you you try to die slowly is stop your burn rate in a sense of calories so that you can make it to a good time again and it seems right. to me like the mountain west the whole economy from the state level to the local level was built around that concept. When times are good, we're going to, in the, the wise squirrel kind of sense, build up our fat reserves and store things away and get ready right. because we know right. that the difficult time's coming. It seems like we've transitioned into the wealth has put us in like the Goldman Sachs world, right? Where it's not so important to be that resilient place anymore as much as it is to have 3% marginal growth above last year's growth rate. You're Do you right. see that? Yeah. I mean, is, is that the transition that's happened? It's in some parts of the West. You know, and again, Utah runs differently uh, than many other states. It has a very high percentage of, of LDS, of Mormon population. Right. And you know, LDS tends to be conservative, but they're not afraid of planning. Chuck. Yeah, you know yeah. Salt Lake City. Right. You look at that grid; they are laying things out. Right. You you look at the counties that surround. I mean, the areas that surround uh, Salt Lake City. There are very few isolated standalone subdivisions. I mean, they tend to be incremental and building out. Not always. Right. That's a model, and your their transit system. You know, that's a very different model than Montana. That's a very different model than uh, Phoenix. Right. Yeah, that's much more incremental, much more not afraid of planning. We can be, we're not risk averse, because I think it's just in, it's probably in, in the LDS and their genes yeah. that, man, they went through tough times, and they did. And uh, we can put our head down and we can do what we have to do, but we don't really want to do that if we don't have to. Culturally, it's kind of funny because as a planner, there's times when you run into like the old curmudgeons who keep you from doing progressive things and you just bang your head against the wall like, oh my gosh, I wish this person would move on. But then you realize that some of the old curmudgeons saying, yeah, you know, I remember the bad times that actually every society kind of needs a little bit, right? Oh, we do. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. I interrupted your thought there, didn't I? No, 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 that was okay because I, I think the point was how, how people look at community and how they plan a community it, it really varies radically in the Mountain West. And that's how the point I was trying to make. Can we talk yeah. specifically about a couple cities? First, let's talk about Sheridan. You live in Sheridan now, right? I do. Why Sheridan? What brought you there? I've been living in Casper. Uh, I was married at the time. Then I went away to graduate school, and I came back. And Casper just was not my, my cup of tea at the time. I happen to like Casper, and it's filled with the most wonderful people in the universe. It's great. Chuck, not only did I, I live in Vermont, but I spent 12 years in Alaska, in Oregon, and Washington, the Pacific Northwest. And I wanted just a little more green. Yeah, yeah. And Sheridan's low elevation. It's, it tends to have a different precipitation pattern. In the rest of the state, just by a couple inches, but that, that makes a difference. As a writer, I thought it would be a great place to live and great for my family at the time, and so that's how we, we moved here. Now, when I went to Sheridan, I, I was told that, first of all, Sheridan has a great downtown. I wouldn't describe Sheridan's downtown as great. <laughs> Maybe by Wyoming standards. I don't know if you have a comment on that or not, but there were some, definitely some great things there, and there were some yeah. people experimenting and trying to make things work. 
Right. But you didn't show up in downtown Sheridan and see a reflection of the wealth and prosperity that I think is flowing through that state today. Is that, is that a fair way to... I think that's fair. I think by, by Wyoming standards, Sheridan downtown is doing, doing okay. Sure. And we have a really strong downtown association. Right. But compared to other communities I've seen, it, it, it may be lacking. Well, maybe it's not fair. That's a, not a fair benchmark. Chuck, the larger issue yeah. is this, is that Horace Greeley did not say in 1865, go to Western cities young man. Right. <laughs> he said, go West. Right. So the core issue, one of the core issues that I'm discussing in this book I'm working on is mythology versus reality. Cities drive the mountain West, Chuck. That's where the jobs are. Right. I mean, and there are some exceptions like Campbell County, Wyoming, a coal producer, you know, it's a commodity and that drives the economy. But, and this is not just true of the mountain West, but it's all over the place. But, you know, the majority of the economy of Denver, of Colorado, is in the front range. And in Utah, it's around, it's, it's the cities are driving. But that's not part of the mythology. And it takes a leap, Chuck, for a community to say, you know, we've got some really wealthy surroundings, we've got wealthy landowners, and that somehow we need to make them part of our downtown community so they can prosper. Right. And I think Sheridan is in that process right now. I think they recognize it. I do too. The other thing about Sheridan, when I went to town, when you talk to certain groups there who are involved in essentially planning for the future of the community, the thing on their lips was a new interchange on the edge of town and all the growth and development that would happen around that. To me, I see the wealth being squandered on things like that, that have really high cost and really low return. While the downtown, literally like a a mile away or 14, 16 blocks away, languishes where you you have a hard time even walking across the street. How do you reconcile that? You're exactly right. And I I don't think Sheridan's alone. I think the concept of in-building, of building from the inside out, of filling in, instead of concentrating on big infrastructure projects, but to sort of do it piece by piece. Uh, that is not an alien concept quite, but it, it has, that's a hard sell. There's still that, con- that idea that if we build it, they will come. Right. I think you of all people can probably affirm that that is a very tough idea to change. Yeah. People still seem convinced. But Wyoming's not California. No. I guess this is the thing I have problems with. If you live in California... I can cut you some slack on the delusion that, you know, your house is going to go up by 10% a year for the remainder of your life. Right. And that if you, you know, take out a bunch of equity loans and either you're going to work out okay, because really when you look back 30 years, that's what you see, right? But that's not what you see in Sheridan. That's not what you see in Wyoming. I mean, you, you don't have to look back very far to see hard times. It seems like the distance that you've covered intellectually as a culture seems much greater to me when we look at that interchange out on the edge and the right. notion of build it and they will come than in other places. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, again, if you come from a background where the land has primacy, that's where the source of the wealth is, is land outside the community, not the community itself. Right. That model and 90% of the communities is gone, Chuck. The yeah. wealth is in the cities themselves. Right. I mean, I mean, even on a rear pedestrian ad valorem basis, 
you know, our, our mutual friend, Joe Minicosi, and you have shown, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, you, you can't get around it. Right. That's where the wealth of the community, but to get people to invest in that, that I still think is a hard sell. It, it, and that's changing. Right. It's changing. Praise be. Uh, but boy, uh, that's, I've found in the mountain West as a whole, and certainly like in Teton County, Idaho, that concept that the wealth of the community was in Driggs and Victor, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, yeah. So one of the other places I wanted to talk about specifically was Teton County and Driggs. Because when I went to Driggs, I mean, I'll be generous. It kind of made me a little sad because here was a city far into the throes of decline in, in many ways. You could see that their new investments were all the strip malls with the fake rock siding, you know, that's going to look really dumb in, in 15 years and the big parking lots out front. And then surrounded by the housing subdivisions that were, you know, marginally occupied, except for the one north of town, which had nobody in it, despite the, you know, the millions and millions of dollars that had been invested there. What happened in Driggs? How would you explain Driggs in Teton County to someone who's never been there? My specialty is economic history, and I would try to just, I would just say sort of history is prologue, which is to say, first of all, Teton County was poor. I mean, since its inception, I mean, it, it just didn't have anything going for it except beauty. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful place. Stunning. With the Teton River yeah. running right to the center, it's a little piece of heaven. But the dynamic in Teton County, Idaho, in the 1950s and 60s was the same in almost every rural community all over America. Kids, gone. People were leaving. No jobs. So they started Grand Targhee Resort. And that resort was built by a group of local folks who brought that ski resort in. Yeah. And, and then that started to change because it opened up almost immediately. Uh, the chapter in my book about... about Teton County is called The Devil Arrived with Targi. <laughs> uh, because what happened was you get people that were independently wealthy or would come build serious vacation homes. And so you start getting uh, sort of a feudal economy. That never does anything really, Chuck, for a community when you have economic bipolarity of wealth. Right. Many communities have it, but it's something that always is just, you got to be careful of this because you'll just get like a surf economy. They'll get the people that have it and the people who are mowing lawns and scrubbing toilets. Right. Maybe I'm being too broad. There, no, I, I don't I think you are. I don't well, think you well, are at all. Okay. Well, anyway, but then Teton County had one boom, uh, gosh, 60s uh, of, a, of a smaller variety, things collapsed, and it was through subdivision. And then, you know, through the 70s and the 80s, it, it sort of grew slowly. But then when Jackson Hole which is right over the divide, which in the Wyoming side. In the late 80s and 90s, as many of your listeners may know, Jackson Hole, which was always wealthy, became uber wealthy. And people needed places to live. And Teton County, Idaho, became a bedroom community. And people just went crazy building lots. They had a pretty loose planning program there. Uh, they did have a plan. They had a county plan. Also, Chuck, there were a lot of farmers and ranchers. Uh, I think probably the word to use in, is hard scrabble. People that had busted their butts their whole lives yeah. raising high altitude barley, high seed potatoes. <laughs> uh, I mean, really happened to work hard to make a living. Yeah, tough and stuff. And scratch a living. Suddenly, Chuck, 
their 500-acre, 1,000-acre farmer ranch, which is pretty small by Western standards, was worth millions. Yeah. And they saw for the first time in generations, oh, man, we don't have to live this way anymore. But it was just a big bubble. And when it collapsed, there were a lot of people that were, uh, and that ranged in there from brokenhearted to just outraged that they had not gotten to develop their lot yet because of that, those damn county commissioners and planning and zoning. They put too many roadblocks in our way, and they're the boogeyman. Forget the, that there was no market to buy it all. Forget that there was no, there was no market. Right. No. Forget right. that, that they, this was totally driven. It was a boom in every classical sense, and uh, it had to fall. And almost all of the elements that created this prosperity came from outside the community. You right now have local governments there, and Teton County is probably a prime example of this, Driggs you know, being a smaller example. But you've got Teton County where if you actually did an accurate account of their balance sheet and all the miles of road they are obligated to maintain right. now in all these subdivisions that are have one house in it, two houses in it, these guys are more than insolvent, right? I mean, they're beyond it's beyond desperate yes when we think housing bubble we think california and florida and you know we think that well just reinflating the housing market pumping some more money into it getting low interest rates on mortgages we can start to whittle away and solve this problem but when you're talking about a place like teton county there's really no solution to this is there there's just no short-term solution, Chuck. I think that's probably the, the best answer I can give you. Yeah, yeah. I remember having a discussion with a, with a gentleman who's the superintendent of school in Teton County. Great guy. Uh, and loved living there. And he could not grok or understand the fact that the more houses you built, the greater that the county would become indebted due to infrastructure and infrastructure maintenance costs. To him, and I think there, were, there are many people in Teton County like this, of the older generation, who are what I call true believers, that housing construction, regardless of location, equals prosperity. Right. That is their scripture. There are other people in Teton County, again, there are people who are really trying to have solutions to this county. The county commissioners, and there's a lot of people that live there, I think want solutions, are trying. But it, it's, it's hard in a place because it's still a pretty polarized community. I think that's fair to say. Uh, you know, so the newcomers... And then you have sort of the old-time, uh, more conservative, most of them LDS uh, folks, who are bitter the way and angry the way it turned out. And so when you get a polarized community, uh, that's tough. Right. There's no way Driggs builds its way out of this. No. No, I, I, well, I, I don't think so. Right. I, I don't think so. That, that it's, I, I have a hard time seeing how they're, they're going to have to consolidate. They're going to have to vacate. What's they're doing? They're yeah. vacating subdivisions. You know, they, they have, I think they've had to pass two road levies just to keep the roads open. They have a long road ahead of them. Yeah. Road ahead of them. But it's, it's not unsolvable, but it's going to take some time. Let's go across the pass into Jackson then. I've been fortunate enough to speak in Jackson a, a number of times and, and come through there in other capacities where I've gotten to chat with people. The crazy thing about Jackson is that you can't live there. It's not affordable. <laughs> no. And and no. you're surrounded by thousands of acres. I mean, literally go over the pass and you've got this hundreds of years of vacant lots. 
Yet people yeah. are trying to live in Jackson to such a degree that you have a hard time finding a, a place to live. What's going on that's different in Jackson? And is there anything extra positive that we can learn from that or, or, or negative that we can learn from what's going on in Jackson? There's a lot of answers, but it's a complicated answer with a lot of parts to it. Yeah. One, let's just talk about basic landmass, which is to say that 92% of, of Teton County, Wyoming, to distinguish it from Teton County, Idaho, it's a small county. 92% is federally owned. So there's just a very small amount of, of sea land, of private land that can be built on. And that's, that's probably one of the core. And uh, the other issue is that Teton County has, for a long time, has a history of attracting serious wealth. The Rockefeller family, which used to own a lot of the land that was now Grand Teton National Park. In fact, it was through a deal that Rockefeller gave. It was Truman. Under Truman, he gave a group of land that became the park. So there, there is this history of wealth and of people paying, will live in an area, they have an independent income because it is so staggeringly beautiful. That is not necessarily the same history as Teton County, Idaho, which is one of being much poorer, of being largely agricultural, and I would say probably politically quite a bit more conservative than uh, Teton County, uh, Wyoming, though there are some conservative luminaries that, that live in Jackson Hole. But I would say it's, it's the history that differentiates those two counties in landmass and the people who came and settled there originally. I mean, if you step back and look at them, is there a way that Driggs could enjoy the prosperity of a place like Jackson? That's, that's too crystal ball for me. I, I think that could be very difficult. Yeah. You know, Herodotus says culture is king. Right, right. And I, and I think <laughs> very the culture, true. it's just such different culture in Teton County, Idaho, than is in, than in Teton County, Wyoming. Yeah. And it's slowly changing. There are people living in, in, in Idaho who in Teton County, Idaho, who are great appreciators, who I think actually might even live in, in Jackson Hole if they could afford it, but they can't. Right. Yeah, Jackson Hole has a great transit system. They're really doing a lot of very interesting things there that uh, may be atypical. And maybe it's the history and the wealth that has driven some of that. But you'd like to think that there's enough of the Mountain West culture there where some of the really good things they're doing, you wouldn't just say, well, that's Jackson Hole. We can't do that here. And I'm sure there's some of that that goes on, no? Uh, yeah, I, I think there's probably more truth to that than we'd like to let on to. Yeah. I think there's a lot that there's a lot of activity in Jackson that is unique to that area for many reasons that to have an analog or to duplicate it in another place would be difficult. I want to finish up by giving you a chance to talk about the book you're working on now. And really, this is the reason why you and I met because you gave me a call and we started chatting and have kept in touch over that book. But why don't you let people know what you're working on? And <laughs> I know you're like me where you've got books in the hopper and you, you hope they come out certain yeah. days. But if you've got an idea of when we can look for that one. The title of the book is called Trouble at the Intersection of Pine and Saguaro. And it's summarize it in one sentence. It's that, you know, building exurban isolated subdivision is the equivalent of throwing public funds at a raffle. Yeah. That uh, the math has been clear for years, Chuck, ever since World War II or before, 
that subdivision property taxes and impact fees don't begin to cover the costs. And uh, the farther outside of town you develop a cluster of homes, the more it costs the community. And in most cases, those costs keep going up. And until we, we have the ability to look at that different, to start building incrementally in our West, because remember, we're the big open. Well, you know, we got a lot, this is, a, you know, land, give me land. Right. Uh, that's the mythology. And so our public policy is based on mythology. And that's sputtering. You know, it, it basically means that, that people in urban areas are paying the cost of people that want to live in unincorporated areas and out in the county because they're never going to be able to pick up the tab for, for what those services cost. And Chuck, the good part is, is that people are starting to get hip to this. Right. I'm about to enter an agreement with some economists at the University of Wyoming. I saw a scholarly piece, very uh, complex economic formulas, published last summer that looked at policing forces in Laramie County, Laramie, the city of Laramie, which is Albany County, and the city of Cheyenne. Mm-hmm. And it just showed that what you talked about, what, again, uh, Joe Minicozzi, who is a guy that works out of North Carolina, has talked about, is that there's just a huge subsidy going on, that the urban is paying for the rural. And that works okay for a while, but it's not, it's not going to work we can't keep on doing that. And what I want to do is right now I'm going to six Western communities. Teton County, Idaho is one of them. Gallatin County, Montana is another. Laramie County, uh, Wyoming. Pinal County, Maricopa County, Arizona. And maybe Salt Lake County. But to explore how these communities are able to, for the next generation, how can they build their prosperity? How, you just can't go to a planning the county commissioners and say, you know, no more subdivisions. Right. You know, filthy and windmills done, Don Quixote, anyone. They say, look, we got to have a discussion about this. That we, This is financially unsustainable, which is kind of a catch-all word, but I think in this case it really applies. I want to read a quote from you and finish with this and let, let you react to it, because I read a bunch of your stuff before I called you, I found this one to be kind of quintessential you, and I I really like it. This is you, and I'm quoting you. Humans are highly adaptable creatures, but endowed with the predilection to engage in apocalyptic thinking. In 1973, I thought the energy crisis was so intolerable that we'd have police on the streets by Christmas. The times I've been wrong is when I assume there's a brittleness in a complex system that turns out to be way more resilient than I thought. That's Sam Western. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do we promote that resiliency? Chuck, how, how do we do it without, without going back to the Old West, Mountain West position of choice? We just, we're just going to hunker down and let this thing blow. Yeah. You know, in the meantime, when it blows over, half your community's gone. That part of the mythology is something that I, I would like to see if we could have a discussion about. Right. And that resiliency I talked about in that quote. I love the Mountain West, and I think for our listeners, if you've not had the opportunity to visit, <laughs> I would try to go and and steal yourself, because I have to admit, every time that I wind up in the Mountain West, myself or with my family, 
there's a part of me that's just drawn and says, my gosh, I would love to live in this place. Not only the natural beauty, but I, I do find the people to be a, a special breed of rugged and compassionate at the same time. So, Sam, thanks so much for taking the time and chatting with us. It means a lot, not only to be able to call you up and, and talk, but to know you're out there doing what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Uh, Chuck, the pleasure is all mine. I really enjoyed the conversation we had. Thank you. Well, let me know when the book comes out, and I'll read a copy, and we'll talk again, all right? Okay, uh, let's do that. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care, everyone. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. So, how's our little town suit you? Fine. Fine. You know, I was thinking, what this town could really use is a racetrack. Really? That's not a bad idea. Send a signal we're growing up. Way ahead of yourselves, aren't you, boys? This is just another mining camp. Have you seen how everyone dresses? Awful Tony for a mining camp. No, sir, the die is cast. We are growing. Be as big as San Francisco in a few years and just as sophisticated. <laughs> Easy, Chance. Think a private affair. Don't raise that arm. I'll tell you, I don't you, 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 you,